Turn with me this morning to Mark chapter 5. We're going to continue in our study of the, the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon this earth. And we are in the midst in that study, uh, in the midst of learning about and seeing as Christ is teaching about his kingdom. That's what we've been studying for several weeks. We have learned about the, uh, the nature of the kingdom regarding how we gain entrance into the kingdom. Uh, what the primary skill then is of the kingdom. Uh, we've learned something about the parameters of the kingdom that are set by its king, King Jesus. Um, hard to remember all of them off the top of my head. We've learned about uh, how the kingdom grows, the scope uh, of the kingdom, and some different things there. Remember we talked about all the, the different parables. There are four of them that pertain in some fashion to the seed of the word growing in the lives of uh, growing in the lives of men. So the process by which the kingdom comes to be. Uh, and then last week we saw the king, if you will, of the kingdom and his ability. Uh, and that's going to continue, that theme is going to continue then into this week. Uh, we're going to see something about the, the ability of Christ as king of the kingdom. But, but it's going to be a little different. So that, so that last week as we talked about his being able, uh, his being able to calm the storm and our safety in and with him and uh, how that in the greatest storms of life, whatever, whatever they may be, uh, we are safe when, when Christ is in the boat with us. What we're going to learn today then uh, is something about the enemy of the kingdom. Because ultimately the enemy of the kingdom is not a physical storm. And we need to get that. And I think, that that, I think that's why you know, it may seem to be redundant as we move through this passage. Because this theme is going to continue. I mean, we're going we're gonna to see a, where, where other healings take place. Uh, two of them, specifically in the next couple of weeks. Um, so there's going to be more examples, instances of Jesus's ability over physical uh, problems and sickness and over the sea and the wind and the waves. But it's crucially important, though, I think is one of the reasons that we're given this passage immediately after his calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee, that we understand that our, our problem, the, the greatest enemy of God's kingdom and his greatest ability uh, to overcome is not that of the physical world. It's simply not. We're going to see then uh, what it is. What, what is the kingdom, uh, the enemy of the kingdom of Christ, uh, as it was in his day and as it continues to be in ours. So Mark chapter 5, we're going to read the first 20 verses, a little bit longer story this morning, the first 20 verses uh, of this passage. So let's just jump right in and read the, the, the text, and then we're going to, I'm going to give you a, a little bit of an outline. It's going to be a little bit different structure than I typically use, and so I'm going to give you that this morning, and then we're going to work down through it together. So Mark chapter 5, uh, before we read these 20 verses, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, um, we plead with you this morning to meet with us uh, in such a way that we are transformed. And so we, we pray that you would open your word to us uh, in a way that it's never been opened before, that you would... Teach us uh, as only you can teach and that we would be willing and able uh, by the power of your spirit to learn what it is that you say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, uh, the words of the Lord. It says, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one, could blind, no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. 
And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion. For we are many. Also he begged them earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place and into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. They went out to see what it was, and it happened. Then they came again to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he... He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he, is, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim it in Decapolis, all that, all that Jesus had done for him, and all that heard it marveled. Now, uh, this is an odd story. Um, it's a very strange account. In fact, you might be interested to know that some of the greatest opponents of Christianity historically use this text as one of the key reasons or arguments that they simply cannot believe the testimony of the Bible. Because this story, among others, we were talking with someone before the service about how many strange and odd and sort of incredible stories there are on the Bible. This one sort of takes the cake, doesn't it? It is truly unbelievable. Uh, it's truly sort of outlandish in addition to its unbelievableness. I mean, we've got demon possession and pigs and, you know, running off mountaintops and into deep abysses and like dead pigs laying everywhere, floating in the water, on the shore. It's just a bit ridiculous. And uh, there are those, like I was reading that Bertrand Russell, one of the great Christian opponents who refused to believe Christianity and, and some, you know, I don't know, 60 years ago, some, some many years ago wrote, wrote a, a piece that was famous about why I cannot become a Christian. And one of the things that he says in that book is because this story is too impossible to believe. That it's too outlandish and it's too ridiculous. Um, so, so what then are we to make of this uh, odd story? It, it is odd, and, and uh, I'm excited to try to bring a little bit of clarity because it's odd, but it is fascinating, and I think it's incredibly important. So what I'm going to do typically as I preach through these sermons, uh, I, I generally follow a model of uh, in an outline, giving you the points and the application of those points as we move along. I'm going to do a little bit different today. Uh, I'm going to give you the points, and we're going to consider the aspects of the story all together with very little or no application, and then we're going to tie it all together in applying all of them together at the end. Because the question is, we're going to look at three different aspects of the story. The question is, how do the aspects of this story, the story as a whole, how does it relate to Jesus, the king and his kingdom? That's in the midst of the teaching about the kingdom. What does it teach us about the kingdom and about the king of the kingdom? 
so how does it inform, uh, relate to who he is, and inform our understanding of who he is? So, so in other words, what do we learn about Christ from this passage, and what do we learn about his kingdom? The three aspects of the story that I want us to consider, there, there are essentially three main areas. There's the location of the story, there's the occasion of the story or the event, and there's the reactions to the event. So we got this really strange event. We got demon possession and casting into pigs and deliverance and all that, and pigs dying and drowning. But in, in light of the oddness, in light of the event that takes place, there's, there's a location, there's an occasion that brings about the story or the event, and then there's the reaction to the story. And in considering these three things, we're going to learn a great deal about who Jesus is and how that applies to our life and to his kingdom. So let's consider first then the location. It's very interesting as we uh, read this story, it gives us a great deal of, if you will, geographic detail about where they are. And as with the event itself, the location is a very, very strange place for Jesus to be. What we are told is that they come to the other side of the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes. Two things. Remember, last time, the story preceding this one, I believe, is chronologically preceding it also. They are on the Sea of Galilee, and a great storm has arisen, or arose, whatever the word may be. And my mom can tell me. <laughs> uh, I'm not the best in English, that's fine. Uh, so, so a great storm, she's giving me thumbs up, have arisen. And Jesus has calmed the storm, right? And so in the, the midst of the calm, Jesus and his disciples on the boat, they make their way then across to where they were headed. So Jesus tells them to get in the boat. What does he say, Rick? Let's get in the boat and go across to the other side. So, the, so this is simply the continuation of their journey. So the, the storm is calmed down. They get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And then it says, though, to the area or the country of the Gadarenes. And I have often referred to this, and you probably have as well, historically, uh, as the Gerasene demoniac or the Gadarene demoniac. And I've sort of come to learn my studies that neither of them are correct. It's probably the Gargasene demoniac. And if you have anything other than a regular King James version, you'll see a little, a little note. Like even in mine here, there's a little one right beside Gadarene. And it's going to point you to some notes and some critical scholarship. Listen, the issue is where was it, okay? Probably not the area of Gerasa or Gadara, because though they were both on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they were a great many miles, like 35 or so, either inland or south and inland. And the problem with that is that the very next line says, and when they had come out of the boat, immediately they met a man and the story takes place. So you get the sense, at least of the initial reading of the text, that he gets to the shore, gets off of the shore into a mountainous area, and is dealing with the people in the immediately preceding region. Okay, so I think that's probably the best way to understand it. There is a land that is known as Gargasa, and it's right there. Listen, where it happened, it really doesn't matter. So, but I'm just I'm giving you all the information. Uh, it's on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and it is in a land probably the Gargasene land, but it could possibly be the Gadara or Gerasa. Uh, it doesn't matter. He is over from the other part of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, we're also told in this text, uh, elsewhere in the text, that this is known as Decapolis. Remember, the, the man goes about uh, and, and he makes it known in all of Decapolis. And that's an important geographical detail because regardless of which specific community or city that it was in, it was in the greater region known as Decapolis. And the reason that's important for us in this story is because it helps us, first of all, to understand that this is a Greek area, not a Jewish area. That's going to become really important. Decapolis is a Greek word, deca being ten, polis being city, and it means an area of ten cities. 
So it's a collection or region of ten cities. Uh, and so this is a Greek, a Hellenized area. And what we need to understand is that all Jews, and rightly so, would have, uh, would have associated with any Hellenized, uh, Greek-influenced, Decapolis, Greek area, not only as being Hellenized, but as being paganized. And it would have been a deeply wicked place. There would have been great wickedness and witchcraft and idolatry. This would not have been the place where God and his people dwelt. So this would have been a wicked area. Also, it would have been, and we know from other, that I'm good, we're going to talk about, we know from other details that it would have been an unclean area, which goes to the Greekness, the paganization of the area that is this Decapolis. It's not a Jewish. It would have been considered in their mindset, and I think rightfully so, unclean. Let's consider a couple of other of the details. One thing that we know about the region is that it was a region of pig farmers. Now keep in mind, these are Jews. But I never thought about that, to be honest with you, until just recently. There are pig farms there. This would have been a place that simply by virtue of the livestock that they kept would have been considered an unclean place. Trust me, uh, an area potent with pigs would not have been a hot spot for Jews vacationing. They didn't spend much time there. This would have been the other side of the tracks, so to speak. This was a Hellenized, paganized Greek area that would have been filled with deep wickedness and idolatry and uncleanness. Let me, let's continue then. There's another detail that helps us with the wickedness, the uncleanness, the difficulty of this area. Look what it says. When they came out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs. Now, there's a couple of possibilities for this. Does it mean a tomb in the side of the mountains where they were? Or does it mean a graveyard? Uh, I would say it means both. The tombs were where they put their dead. Think about where Jesus was buried, right? He was laid in the tomb. Um, essentially... This would have been a land or where the demoniac came from. He came out of a, an area, a region of deadness, a region of dead people. What we know from the Old Testament is what? That Jews did not fool with dead people. It made them what? Unclean. It made them unfit for worship. It made them unable to be in God's presence. Right? There was a, there was a ritual for cleansing. That if you touched a dead person, if you touched the, the pillow or the pillowcase or the sheets that someone was laying on when they died, then you had to go through this entire process, this ritualistic cleansing, where you could be uh, restored back into the community and, and to the religious ceremonial community of the Jewish people. So what I want you to see is that this is a Greek, pig-infested, dead-infested area. This is not a place where Jews went. Further, this is not a place where even the Greek people in the day went. What does it tell us about this man himself? That he was put out in the tombs, that he was bound with chains, that he was shackled. This was a place of extreme isolation. It was a place of intense despair and as Dr. Thomas, Dr. Derek Thomas who's now, he used to be at, uh, in Jackson he's now at uh, First Presbyterian Church in uh, Columbia, South Carolina is, was a, a dear mentor to me he, he said this, whatever the town was this is not part of the land where the covenants of God operate this was a wicked and a a lost 
gross, filthy, broken place. It's a place of isolation. And then quickly as a note, so it's an odd place for Jesus to be. And it's an even odder place for Jesus to have his disciples. The question then is, how did they get there? Because Jesus told them to go there. Don't miss that. We're going to come back to that. How did they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee at this dead, pig-infested, problematic place for Jews? This, This place, this land where the covenants of God did not operate, where he was not honored? Because Jesus said, get in the boat and let's go to the other side of the sea. Now, that's the location. The second thing, what then is the occasion of the event? Well, the occasion of the event is they get off the boat and a man who is deeply possessed by powerful and strange demons, spiritual beings, comes out to them and begins a conversation with Jesus. I love it. The picture here is one of uh, Jesus sort of stepping out onto the boat and the moment his foot hits the dirt... The demons know that he's there. And they run out to him, it says, if you look, let me find it. uh, In verse 6, look at what it says. Jesus sets foot on the land, and the demons realize that when they saw Jesus from afar, they ran and worshipped him. Now, don't misunderstand their worship there. They were not honoring him as their God, their Savior. They were honoring him as the King Because every creature bows the king, bows the knee to the king. And so they they realize the king has now come. They may not like him. They do not believe in him. They don't trust him for salvation. But listen, they are under his authority. And so they come running from afar and they worship or prostrate themselves. They fall at his feet. And look, they cry out to him with a loud voice. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Whoa. Remember the, remember the thing we talked about? Who are the people in the book of Mark? All of these stories about Jesus. It's, it's about the identity of Jesus and the only people that get it so far are the demons. Look at their theology. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. The divine incarnation of God himself. The only begotten of the Father. This is the very thing that the religious leaders hated because he claimed to be God. That they sought to kill him because of his claims in this area. And it was the very thing that the people, even his own followers, often did not understand. If they really understood and believed that he was God, it would not have been a problem that there was a storm upon the sea. But the demons. Don't miss this. The occasion is that the foot of Jesus hits the dirt, and then the face of the demons follow. They are on their face before Christ their King. And they are crying out to him, to have mercy on them. What have, what have I to do with you? They say, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, I beg you, I implore you, I plead with you by God that you do not torment me. What they were terribly afraid. So the occasion then is this demon-possessed man. And I think there are a couple things that we need to take note of here. And the first and most significant for me, practically speaking from this passage and from the occasion, is that the demon possession was real and it was a real expression of the mighty power of the devil. I want you to think just practically about the the intensity of the possession that this man was under. He was not under his control of his own body. What does it say if you go back to you go back to verse 3, kind of getting a running start. He had his dwelling among the tombs or the, the, the graveyard there. No one could bind him. 
not even with chains. He was, he was supernaturally strong because the demons were acting through him. He had often been bound with shackles and chains, it says, but they could not hold him. He had pulled them apart, broken them into pieces. And then look what it says, neither could anyone tame him. He was not only physically out of control of his body, but I want you to see mentally that the power of the devil was so real that it had overtaken his body and his mind. That's what the language for tame him, look at what it says, that night and day always he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out involuntarily and cutting himself with stones. What a, what a, what a sad existence and situation, right? But, but what I think is important for us to see is that there is real power. There's real power in the devil. That, that he is a roaring lion, the New Testament tells us. That is sneaking around and prowling, looking for those that he may destroy. He is a mighty hunter. We, I mean, the time for Halloween is coming up. You know, and, and, and we joke about the devil. And, and kids dress up as the devil, as if he is a toy, as if he's not really real. And people make fun of the church because they believe in, oh, what is the devil? I watched a documentary where uh, this guy had, it was one of those investigation discovery things, my mom and I love those. And, and this guy, his girlfriend had killed their infant daughter because, she, because the devil had gotten into her. They thought she was demon-possessed. I mean, crazy. That's not my point. My point is that there was an investigator, a psychiatrist, that was interviewing the guy. And you know the question he kept asking him? This guy was not a believer. But he kept asking, well, who is the devil? Now, I, the girl wasn't really possessed by the devil. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that he was, he was getting at the fact that he does not really believe in the devil. Right? I think that what the guy is wrong, but not because the devil is not real. We joke about the devil and we... We, we, we deal tritely with the issue of the devil and his power and the demons, his cohorts, the, the, his minions that, that prowl around with him doing his bidding. And I think we need to be very careful that we understand that he is very real and his power is very real. Look at even the name of this guy. What does he say? My name is Legion. Why? We don't know the numbers. So many you know, theologians try to use the comparisons of the language of Legion that it meant a certain uh, number of military personnel, the, the Roman legions. Listen, we don't really have any idea what the number. The point of this is, is that it was a mighty multitude of the, of the, the powers of Satan in, in, invested in this guy and possessing this man and taking him over and making him do things that he was not even in control of his body to do. What, what's the point? The, the point is that the power was incredible. The occasion for this was a mighty demon possession. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite theologians and pastors, very practical and uh, just, just awesome. Listen to what he says. Let us beware of giving way to the senseless habit of jesting about the devil. It is a habit which furnishes dreadful evidence of the blindness and corruption of human nature. And one which is far too common. When it is seemly in the condemned criminal to jest about his executioner, then and not until then will it be seemly for mortal man to talk lightly about Satan. 
Well would it be for us all if we strove more to realize the power and presence of our great spiritual enemy and pray more and more to be delivered from him. It, it was a true saying of an eminent Christian now gone to rest. No prayer is complete which does not contain a petition to be kept from the devil. He is real and the occasion is his real power. But notice also then in this occasion, I love the occasion for this event, in the event itself, we notice the supreme authority of Christ over the satanic power. All Jesus has to do is set foot in the area where the demons are, and they fall on their face before him. The demons feared and dread him. They were bound to obey him. Notice then that the demons, as I've said before, just like their master, are on a leash like a dog, and Jesus is holding the other end. That they do not go anywhere that God does not permit. They do not do anything that Jesus does not allow. And when they come to him, they plead with him for their life that they would not be tormented. And they ask if they can go into swine before they go into the swine. And Jesus must give them permission. It's a beautiful picture of the supreme authority of Jesus. Notice they had an intense knowledge and theology about him. They knew who he was. It speaks to his rulership and his kingship. That though mortal men did not get it, the powers and principalities of the other worlds understand all too well who King Jesus is, and they beg him for mercy because they also understand the scope of his kingship and his kingdom. That they, too, fall within its boundary, and that they are not beyond the mighty hand of the mighty King Jesus. What a great picture, then, the occasion. Finally, then, the reaction. The location of the event, the occasion of the event, the demon possession. And then there are the reactions to the event. He cast the pig, uh, he cast the demons into the swine. And then it's very interesting, some, some argue that they, they sort of ran down a slope like down the mountain into the shore and just ran out into the water mindlessly until they drowned. Uh, that's possible. But I, I love the language here. It says that they ran uh, from the steep into the deep, <laughs> kind of rhyming there. I, I, I prefer to think of in that day uh, a cliff, a cliff where they ran off of the cliff mindlessly and fell to their doom, but fell to their doom and, 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 and could, could wreak havoc no more. One theologian has said that this was the attempt of the devil. Uh, if he could not, um, he could not, uh, you know, drown Jesus on the boat in the storm, that he was going to make sure that his ministry did not make it beyond the scope of Jerusalem and the Jews, and so he had gone and infested this, these people in this area, and that they wanted to be able to continue their ministry of wickedness, and so they wanted to be able to get into these swine and to cause any mischief that they could. I don't know, but what I do know is this, is that the swine, uh, it was a bad day for the, for the pigs, but, but Jesus had supreme authority and was the supreme king even of the demons. And they went into the swine and went voluntarily to their destruction because of his rulership. It's a beautiful picture then. They knew who he was. They feared and dreaded him. They obeyed his voice and they pleaded with him for mercy. So then the reaction. What are the reactions? Uh, and quite frankly, the reactions are, uh, they're, they're as odd as anything else in the story. There's the reaction of the many. Uh, notice in verse 14 it says, So those who fed the swine fled... I mean, I guess I would have been a little freaked out too. I don't know. But they fled and then they told it what had happened in the city and in the country. And then if you go on down a little bit later in 16, it says, And those who saw it told them how it had happened to those 
to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine and what happened to them. And then in 17, here it is. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. So they see the guy that was demon-possessed, who could not be bound by shackles, who was banished to the tombs, who was out of his body and out of his mind, overtaken with spiritual demon possession, and he is sitting and clothed and in his right mind, the scripture tells us. But they see that the pigs ran off the mountain in mindless uh, wonder to their, to their death, and they are so afraid, and they are so uh, puzzled and, and, and fearful of what Jesus is going to bring to them. We'll come back to this at the application at the end. What, what they're, they're so fearful of what Jesus is going to bring into their land that they simply want him to leave. I personally, I mean, I can't understand that because, because there was a time in my life when I, I just wish Jesus would go. But now it's hard for me to grasp uh, to, to have seen that type of power and that type of authority and, and, and then to require him to leave. So, so their, their reaction is not, is, is not great. Uh, so there's the reaction of the many. Then there's the reaction of the man who, uh, I love his reaction, it stands in stark contrast to the reaction of the many. They want him to go, right? But the man wants to go with him. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the direct opposite. He's so grateful and he's so impressed by the power of Jesus that he realizes that if this man can do what he's done for me, there is nothing that he cannot do. It's the question of Jesus from a few chapters ago, right? When he tells the guy, uh, not get up and walk. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And then the religious leaders, they question and say, well, who is it that can forgive sins but God only? And he says, well, is it harder for me to forgive his sins or is it harder for me to tell him to get up and walk? And then to, to, to prove the point to them, he does both. He's forgiven his sins and he says, son, get up off your mat, take it with you and leave. He realizes that if he could have done this, the spiritual reality, that certainly the physical would be no problem. And the man wants to go with him. But then there's the reaction of the many, the man, and then the master. This one is odd as well. He wants to go with them, it says in verses 18 and 19. He begged him, but then 19, however, Jesus did not permit him. In some ways, I feel sorry for the guy. He wants him to go back to a land where he is not wanted, and he's always been an outcast, and he has existed in isolation. To go to his home where he's known for mindless, wickedness and debauchery. But he tells him to go home to his friends, that's an interesting thing there, and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. And he has had compassion on you, how he has had compassion upon you. Um, Jesus will not let him go. Uh, Jesus wants him to go back. Now, uh, let's, let's consider application. The question that is, what do these aspects of the story reveal to us about Jesus and his kingdom? Well, fundamentally, this is a story about dominion. It's a story about reign of king. And it's a, it's, a, it's a story about sovereignty. It is a story about two mighty kings. Listen carefully. Two mighty kings and the scope of their influence and power. This is a story that shows us that Jesus is the supreme king and that all of the other would-be kings of this world and all others that they must fall under the supreme rulership and kingship of Jesus. That's really what this story is about. So let's consider the location then. All of the things that I told you about the location, and it's obvious, what can we learn from it? First, and most importantly, that there is nowhere 
no place of wickedness and debauchery, no place of idolatry and insubordination, no place of isolation and despair and shame, that Jesus will not go to deliver people from the grip of the enemy. Praise God for that. That he will go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to a land full of pigs and deadness, wickedness and pagan religion, and he will go there to find those whom he desires to deliver. Friends, I would simply ask you this morning, is that where you are today? Are you on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Are you so far on the other side of the sea that you think you are unreachable? That you are so gripped and controlled by the enemy that you feel as though you don't have any control over yourself and your actions? This story gives you hope. There is a king that is mightier than your captor, and he is coming to the place of deep darkness for you. And when he gets there, the powers in your life that seem so untamable will bend the knee to him and will cry out for mercy, and they will go where he sends them without even a word of protest. You're not unreachable. There's no amount of wickedness. You, the, the demons that, that haunt you, they, they are tameable. The question then is, how will we respond to him when he comes? Remember their response. How will we respond to him when he comes? Are we going to say like the many, we really just want you to go? You've come to the deep darkness to get us and to bring us into the light. But we really love the deep darkness because our sin is hidden. And we really just wish you would leave. We really just wish you would quit meddling in our life and quit trying to make something of us that we don't want to be and we just wish that you would go. Or will we say like the man, thank you for coming to get me. Please let me go with you. And for us Christians who have been delivered from the darkness into the light, there is another question. Are you willing to go there with your king? Right? We, we tend to gravitate to the the nice and easy places of ministry, to look for those that look like us and act like us and have the same amounts of money, relatively speaking, that we do and dress the same way that we do and have the same color skin that we do and are a part of the culture that we are, to go and to share the gospel and the truths of grace with, to redeem and to retrieve. Are we willing, friends, to go with the king to the deep darkness to deliver from the enemy? I hope that we are. To take up arms and fight. And head out into the battle with King Jesus. Consider then the occasion. This odd occasion. What does it teach us about Jesus? Well I've mentioned some of these. It teaches us plainly that he has supreme authority. Not over the storms in creation only. But over the powers and principalities. That he has not just bound up the storm. But he has bound up the strong man. And he is delivering and, and plundering the people that are in his kingdom. This is a story about the supreme authority of Jesus over all the powers and principalities that are not of this world. That even the demons, their seemingly victorious king, that all that they are are not beyond the scope of true King Jesus and his infinite kingdom. Right? It's a story that provides the clear and undeniable evidence to the religious opponents of Christ. They asked him who can forgive sins, but God, this story alone tells them, I am God. And not only do I have power over your sickness and over the storm, but I have power over your souls. And I can deliver all of them. This is the story that solidifies that for Christ. So the occasion is virtual, I mean, vitally important. And finally, consider the reactions. As I said a moment ago, what is going to be our reaction to Jesus? 
What is going to be our reaction to this story? What are we going to do with him today when he comes to get us? Do you just want him to go? Or do we want to submit our ultimate allegiance to him? Uh, Are we thankful for the light that shines brightly in the evil of our hearts, or do we want to darken it? Do we want to go with him, or do we simply want him to go? Um, I think about J.C. Ryle again. He said this, The Lord Jesus knows better than his people what is the right position for them to be in. He was talking about this story. He was speaking specifically to when Jesus told the guy, No, you can't go with me. And, you know, that may be where we are today also as well. As a matter of application, we, we want to go with Jesus. And we have a certain idea of where we want to be ministering and what we want to be doing and what we think our life should look like. And we may be hearing Jesus say, no, you can't come. No, that can't happen. No, not right now. Rather than being frustrated, give our ultimate and supreme allegiance to him, as we've seen in this passage, and understand that he has a better uh, knowledge of where we need to be than even where we do. What what are we going to do with Jesus when he comes to get us? And for those of us that have been retrieved, are we going to be willing to go with him? In this story, there are two kings, but the reality is that there is only one true king. Are we a part of his kingdom, and are we resting safely under his care? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this beautiful story that in its Uh, oddness and uniqueness you speak clearly and loudly to your supreme authority over the enemy of your kingdom that the devil has no power over us that for those of us who are in Christ we are in the light and that if we are trusting and resting in you that, that we can only be touched by him when you make that possible and when you allow that Father, we may not always understand why you allow that, but help us to see from this passage that you know better about where we need to be than we do. May we find our ultimate hope and trust in you as the king, in being a part of your kingdom. Or teach us grace today. Write it upon our hearts. Make us thankful for the redemption that you've provided, for the deliverance that you have given each of us. Help us to remember the deep darkness where we were and to see clearly that you were able and willing to come even there to get us. God, and then help us to be willing to go there for others. Lord, if there is one in this building today that is still in the darkness, I pray that they would see in the story that you're after them. And I pray that they would respond to you accordingly, that they would bend their knee to you, that they would submit their supreme allegiance to you, that they would cry out to you for salvation and forgiveness, that they would be delivered like this man, and that they would want to go with you. Lord, give us all a desire to be with you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.